Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. I am here with my co-host, J.G. Michael, who just had a really interesting conversation with a guy named Douglas Horn. J.G., maybe you can give us a little background on Douglas Horn. So Douglas Horn is a really interesting figure. Uh, He's been involved in the sort of, I guess you would call it the JFK assassination research community, although he doesn't really, he doesn't deal with the... JFK as much now. Now he writes about Pearl Harbor, and uh, he has some interesting takes on Pearl Harbor uh, that I, I think go against the mainstream narrative in some ways, but he's also not on the side of the sort of like, oh, it's all FDR's fault. I hate FDR crowd either. So he has really interesting views on that, but he's mainly known for JFK, and he was actually involved in uh, the Assassination Records Review Board, uh, which was created after, I believe, Oliver Stone's JFK, because, you know, there was this push. We need to get all the documents out about JFK. And I mean, there were people that supported this that didn't even believe that, you know, the Kennedy assassination was the result of a conspiracy. They thought, hey, we need more transparency. And this is a, sh- a way to show that we're going to be more transparent. The government's going to be more transparent. So he was very involved in the Assassination Records Review Board. And What's fascinating to me about the ARRB is that they got a hold of documents that say a lot about U.S. foreign policy. So one of those documents is Operation Northwoods, which essentially is a false flag operation. It's a uh, proposal to essentially do these false flag attacks that would then be blamed on Cuba. So this was the Joint Chiefs of Staff making a proposal to President Kennedy. They never went through with it, but I think it is interesting that it was even proposed. It's really crazy that it's been proposed, and it really shows— I think it shows the the fervor of the sort of Cold War mindset that people within the establishment have. Yeah, the great lengths they were willing to go to. I mean, I guess you'll go into this with Douglas a little bit, but what was the actual plan as far as what was the false flag that that they proposed generating? So Operation Northwoods— would have involved, you know, sinking boats of Cuban refugees and hijacking planes to be shot down and giving it the appearance of being shot down, uh, you know, blowing up a U.S. ship, things of that nature, and then blaming it on Cuba. Uh, that's essentially uh, what Operation Northwoods was. And the White House uh, shot it down. Yes. I think where where that comes into the possibility that JFK was assassinated by members of his own government is, like you said, it shows the fervor of the Cold Warrior. And the argument is that people in the in the United States government, in the Pentagon, Joint Chiefs of Staff, CIA, are engaging in assassinations abroad. They're able to do something crazy like kill civilian targets to drag America into a war with Cuba, why wouldn't they go that next step and assassinate a president they don't agree with? 
my view is that things like the ARB were actually really good. It's good that we had the Assassination Records Review Board. It's good that we're having a lot of these documents declassified because even if, you know, let's say it turns out beyond a shadow of a doubt that Oswald shot Kennedy and it was just him and that's all it was. I think it's good that we have documents released that can give us an insight into the foreign policy of the U.S. during the Vietnam War era, during the Kennedy administration. I think that we gain insight from the documents that the Assassination Records Review Board were able to get released. Uh, so it's weird because to me, the story of this interview and the way I wanted to approach it was that, you know, regardless of what you think of the assassination, in a weird way, all the activism pushing for transparency in the release of documents uh, actually helps with our knowledge of the Cold War. It's no small thing to attempt or to propose this kind of false flag operation. So, I mean, it is showing something extreme and disturbing about our government. It's just not necessarily perhaps what the JFK assassination research community thinks that they were going to be getting. Yeah, I think that sums it up uh, quite well. In 1992, after a lot of debate, the Congress enacted a law called the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act. And it's a mouthful. So the, the short version of that is the JFK Records Act. And that was uh, after debate finally passed in October of 1992. Now, there's two things I would mention about the background. The, the, the immediate stimulus for that act for the government to release records that were still classified about the assassination was the Oliver Stone movie, JFK, which had, uh, on the one hand, it uh, energized activists and independent JFK assassination researchers uh, into saying, hey, somebody finally told the truth. We had a coup in this country. And of course, it really angered the establishment. And so the, the motivation of, I would say, most of the people in Congress who supported the JFK Records Act, their motivation was not the same motivation that JFK researchers had for supporting the act. They were more interested in transparency, and that, that, that's what they claimed was the, the reason. They wanted uh, apparent transparency in government, and they thought that release of previously classified records would kill and destroy many... Uh, assassination conspiracy uh, theories. So uh, people like John Glenn and David Boren, uh, both senators of, from different sides of the aisle, they both supported the act because they thought it would uh, put, to, put to the death uh, ridiculous conspiracy theories and that openness in government was in general a good thing. So it sounds like there may have been a, a tension between uh, people who believed that uh, there was a conspiracy uh, to kill Kennedy and people who were mainly interested in the uh, documents being released for reasons of, uh, you know, opposing government secrecy. Uh, do you think in the end, both sides sort of came together in a positive way? Yes, uh, there was tension. Actually, there was a lot of tension on between certain members of the staff. The staff was small. It was 25 people or less at various times. Uh so there was tension, uh, but the board members were so aggressive in releasing records. 
that it ended up not really mattering that much what their personal beliefs systems or what their biases were when they came to their job as board members, uh, because they allowed us to do the depositions, to play in our sandbox. That's me and the general counsel, Jeremy Gunn. They allowed us to do the medical deposition. They allowed Jeremy Gunn to do, uh, I think it was at least three Mexico City CIA depositions. So they allowed us to do things to clarify the record. We were not empowered. We were not empowered by the law, by the JFK Records Act, to come up with new findings of fact or conclusions about the assassination. And because we were not allowed to do those things, they're really, we, we were able to come together because the review board members wanted to aggressively release as many records as they could within the terms of the law, the JFK Records Act. You remember, this was the first exercise in citizen review of government classified records, where the final decision on declassification would be done by a panel of private citizens and their staff, not by the agencies themselves. So this was a groundbreaking exercise. And uh, so everybody on the staff, I think, was satisfied with the records that the board decided to release. And I don't know of anybody that had serious heartburn that the board uh, redacted a few records here and there, you know, upheld redactions because it was always related to sources and methods. Uh, it was never related to embarrassment of an agency or anything, or withholding the story of what happened. It was not, none of that. There was nothing withheld for that for those reasons. Uh, there were four or five of us who were intensely curious about all the conflicts in the record. The, the, the whole case is filled with conflicts. Which evidence do you believe the most? Uh, which evidence do you discard as being unworthy of belief? Uh, so uh, there, there were conflicts among staff members, uh, and uh, some of the staff members thought we were making mistakes to take depositions of medical witnesses and CIA witnesses years later. Uh, but they lost, and the board members approved those actions, and the executive director and the general counsel approved those actions. So some of those uh, sour grapes people uh, left. In the end, uh, the five board members and the staff ended up working together pretty well, and we did come together to release the maximum of what we could release and to find the maximum of what was there to find. I think this really was a milestone, the ARB. And I guess uh, getting into the Northwoods documents, I, I guess where I want to start is how did the ARB uh, decide what would count as, as a record that should be released? Over the course of my first year on the staff, remember I was there for years two, three, and four, uh, Jeremy Gunn, who's the head of, Jeremy Gunn was the head of research and analysis of all the analysts on the staff. And most of the staff were analysts, about two thirds of us. And uh, so Jeremy Gunn and members of each each of his four teams, I was on the military team, there was a CIA records team, there was an FBI records team, and the fourth team was all others. All others included Secret Service, uh, U.S. Information Agency, and other things. So those people from those teams and Jeremy Gunn cobbled out letters that uh, we would send to different agencies saying, we define an assassination record this way. You've already turned records over to the archives starting in 1993. 
but we think your searches were very narrow and weren't broad enough. So this is how we define an assassination record. And we want you to reconduct all your searches and submit records with a broader net, having cast a broader net either to the archives, if you release them in full, or if you want to withhold some of them, you have to give them to us and we will make the final decisions on what gets released and what doesn't. So in my case, in the case of the Pentagon, I, I use the term broadly, the Pentagon, uh, I was, uh, I and uh, two other people on the military records team worked with Jeremy Gunn to set the criteria that we gave to the Pentagon, the Office of Secretary of Defense General Counsel. We set the criteria for their search. And they did probably less than any of these agencies in the first year. They hadn't done anything. And then uh, that was before I showed up. And then even half halfway into my first year, the Pentagon wasn't forthcoming with anything. They, I don't think they took it seriously. So, uh, and that's unacceptable for two reasons. One is that, you know, the, the accused assassin, what uh, most researchers view as the patsy, just what he said he was, was in the military and then defected to the Soviet Union and then came back and wasn't prosecuted. So he uh, his records would have been great importance. And then the autopsy is a military autopsy on the body of the deceased president. And there are so many questions on the autopsy that I, I just can't go into them today. I mean, it's it's the biggest mess I've ever seen in my life. So that's two reasons right there to want the military to come forward with records, also because as Senator Schweikert was on the uh, church committee in the Senate in the mid-1970s. And remember, the church committee came right before the House Select Committee on Assassinations. So it's the church committee that revealed CIA plots to kill foreign leaders, especially Castro. It's the church committee that revealed CIA working with the mafia to kill foreign leaders, especially Castro. And so one of the members of a, a subcommittee on the church committee, Senator Schweiker of Pennsylvania, said that Oswald, the former defector and accused assassin, had the fingerprints of intelligence all over him, all over his career, all over his defection, all over the way he returned to the United States. So that's another reason why you want the Pentagon to be responsive. So what we told them uh, we, we cobbled together this massive letter and we hand delivered it in person over at the Pentagon in uh, 1996, saying, uh, sorry, we don't think you've been responsive yet. And these are the elaborate criteria we've set up for you and handed them the letter. They had 19 people there in that room. Unbelievable. We had four. <laughs> so we were outnumbered, but we had the law on our side and, and our general counsel and head of research, Jeremy Gunn, made the presentation. So, I mean, they had to listen to him because he's talking to other lawyers. They had to listen to him. He's citing the law the whole time. So we told them any records relating to Oswald, of course, we want them. Uh, we will want service records of a lot of people that had contact with Oswald when he was in the Marine Corps, which we got. We told them in general, anything related to Cuba policy from 1960 to 64, or to Vietnam policy from 1960 to 64, we will define as an assassination record. Because under certain biases or interpretations of history, those records could be considered 
quote, reasonably related, unquote, to the assassination. If the president was not killed by a lone nut, then those policies could be reasonably related to his death. So that's how we expanded the definition of an assassination record. A lot of the documents you're getting from this relate to foreign policy towards Cuba, as you said, and also uh, the, just the Vietnam era in general. So uh, regardless, outside of the assassination, we're learning a lot about foreign policy history that we didn't know before the ARRB. So I would say the biggest record on Vietnam that was uncovered was the full meeting minutes, you know, over 200 pages of the fifth Wait a minute. Might have been the eighth. Anyway, it was the Secretary of Defense Conference on Vietnam held in Saigon in May 63. So all we had up until this time, historians, was a three and a half or four page summary of what happened at that conference written by a Navy uh, rear admiral. So we we were able to get the Pentagon to turn over to us the complete set of meeting, meeting minutes. And it really fleshed out that previous summary and prove that, uh, you know, as of May 63, McNamara, on behalf of the president, is telling the people at this meeting, we are going to pull all of our forces out by the end of 65, and we are going to pull out 1,000 men by the end of this year, you know, confirming that. Uh, and, of course, Kennedy didn't get that, that formal order as an order until October of 63. But McNamara is telling this, them this at the meeting and getting the full set of minutes confirmed uh, what other people had said. It confirmed it as a fact. So uh, that was uh, an important Vietnam document. And then on Cuba, it was a gold mine. Uh, more documents than you can ever imagine about uh, dirty tricks, covert operations, economic warfare, psychological warfare, and then this monster that was in the closet and nobody knew anything about called Operation Northwoods, which is, it's probably a good time to launch into how that was generated back in 1962. Cause it's an, it's a March 13, 1962 letter. It's a 12 page letter sent from chairman of the joint chiefs of staff, Lyman Lunitzer, probably Kennedy's biggest opponent in the Pentagon. They hated each other not only personally, but for reasons of policy. I mean, that's what led to them personally not liking each other was the policy disagreements. Uh, so that it's a, uh, it's a cover letter with 12 pages of attachments sent on March 13th, 1962 from Lyman Lemnitzer to the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara. And it's interesting. Uh, it would be interesting next if I, before we describe what's in the document, if I describe who stimulated it and how it came about. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Yeah, let's get into that. And also, I just want to note, uh, just for further clarification, uh, this is how we got the the document uh, about Operation Northwoods. It was the ARRB. And I, I note that because I, I've seen a lot of people 
uh, say, oh, this first came to light because of um, the investigative reporter James Bamford. And I'm, I'm not dismissing Bamford's work at all, but it, it actually is because of the ARRB. I, I mean, Bamford reported on it later on, but the ARRB were the ones that got us this document released. Right. And so let me explain that. Uh, I think he was the first book author to talk about them in a book. But I don't think he gave us adequate credit. It was like buried in a footnote or something. Uh, and uh, what happened was I'm on the military records team. Later, uh, my boss departed a year and a half into my three-year stay. And I was kicked upstairs to become the head of the military records team. But uh, about the, yeah, it was about the time. Yes, it was about the time that I got promoted to head the records team for the military records. Uh, we were seeking records from the Air Force, from the Navy. And when I say Navy, I mean Office of Naval Intelligence. From the Marine Corps, since Oswald was in the Marine Corps and a lot of his buddies were. And yeah, Air Force, ONI, Marine Corps, and perhaps most important, the Pentagon itself. Now, the record keepers at the Pentagon is called the Joint Staff Secretariat, and that's who I was dealing with, and that's who I got the Northwoods file from, and also those Vietnam uh, meeting minutes that I mentioned. So, uh, you know, there's the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and then the Joint Chiefs, the head of each service. And that's, they're established formally by the National Security Act of 1947. Underneath them, the outfit that does all the staff work for them is called the Joint Staff. And the Joint Staff had many, many people on it to do all kinds of staff studies, you know, contingency war plans and uh, you name it. I mean, if we wanted a scenario uh, studied ahead of time, they would do the staff study. What if we went to war with this country or that country? How would we go about it? Uh, you name it. Uh, and so probably uh, more than 200 officers on that staff. So uh, the Joint Staff Secretariat, a group of record keepers, maintained the records, the historical records of the Joint Staff and of the Joint Chiefs. So those guys, uh, in response to our large omnibus letter to the Pentagon's general counsel, they brought forth one day to me, I was the tip of the spear because I was the head of the military records team. They brought forth the Northwoods file and it was really thick. It was about an inch and a half thick of uh, a lot of staff work. The whole story that preceded the sending of that 13-page letter to McNamara in March, the whole story from January and February and early March, all the backup studies that went into that 13-page letter. And so they provided this to me, and I was just uh, really pleased with their forthcomingness and their willingness to comply with the law. So uh, we knew that if the normal, uh, I'll just tell you this short story about how we got it declassified so fast, how we were able to release it that same year to the public. Uh, normally, uh, each agency would review records that they, have an that they have equities in, in other words, that they have an interest in, one at a time. So normally, this pile of records uh, would have been reviewed uh, by the CIA, and they might have taken 
four months to do it since they didn't have much of an input into these records. But the Army and, and the Joint Staff might have taken uh, a year to review them. And uh, the Navy would have taken their own sweet time. So we came up with a concept of my, my boss did, the executive director, let's have joint declassification sessions and force these people to come to our office and do a round robin declassification session where they're all sitting in the same room. They can share insights and, uh, oh yeah, we don't object to this. Okay, well, we don't either, or we don't like this. It's embarrassing, but we, we have to release it because the, the JFK Act says we have to release it. We can't withhold it just because it's embarrassing. So, and then there were just a few things that were not released from the Northwoods file and they pertain to what we would, uh, I got the impression that, well, they pertain to what we would take out if we went to war with Cuba then in 1997. So those kind of things they considered still current. So they weren't gonna let us, you know, release that part. But anything relating to the planning of this, these shenanigans back in 62, they had to release. So anyway, the Joint Staff Secretariat got the highest marks for me for cooperation of anybody within the Pentagon structure. And the, they were commended by me in my book and they should still be commended today because those uh, civil servants were uh, really very honorable men. What was the document itself and, and what was contained in it? If, just for listeners that don't know, and I have a number of listeners that do know, but uh, for the, the people new to this. The document is entitled Justification for U.S. Military Intervention in Cuba. That's the title of the document. And the document consists of pretexts for war. As soon as you hear the word pretext, you better have a couple of red flags going up because a pretext is a lie. It's an official lie upon which to base future action. So uh, the, uh, the letter that Lemnitzer sent to McNamara was very clear that we're responding to requests for pretexts for a military intervention in Cuba, to go to war with Cuba. And uh, so before I get into what those juicy tidbits were, I mean, they're really alarming and embarrassing for our country. But here's what, here's what happened. At the time, in January 62, there was a, a man named, uh, Brig, uh, excuse me, uh, General Lansdale uh, of the Air Force was the operations officer for a, a covert action committee called Operation Mongoose. And anybody who studied Cuba policy in 61 and 2 or the Kennedy assassination, they know about Operation Mongoose. Uh, and it was basically... Uh, an attempt to bring down the Castro regime to institute regime change from within Cuba through two things, and two things only, economic warfare and sabotage and psychological warfare. Mongoose did not include assassination of Fidel Castro. That's something the CIA was planning on its own independently. So Mongoose was about economic warfare through sabotage, and psychological warfare. That's what it was about. And the operations officer for Mongoose was a uh, two-star general, U.S. Air Force General Ed Lansdale, who a lot of people have described as CIA in, in an Air Force uniform. Uh, now, previous to this, Lansdale had been 
an advocate of U.S. military intervention in Vietnam in 1961. He was one of the people strongly advocating that Kennedy send combat troops to Laos and Vietnam in 61. And when Kennedy said, no, I'm not sending combat troops to Laos, it's a landlocked country, we can't supply the troops, uh, it would be a disaster. Uh, then Lansdale really began rationing up the pressure. He and Walt Rostow and the National Security Council and, and others and the Joint Chiefs wanted combat troops in Cuba in 61. Well, Kennedy resisted all this pressure. And in November 61, he issued NSAM 111. This is important now because it tells you why Lansdale was transferred from one job to another. So on November 22nd, 61, Kennedy decides no combat troops to Vietnam. I'm going to increase the number of advisors dramatically and the amount of equipment we send, but there will be no combat troops. And JFK never changed his mind about that. But what happened was a lot of people got fired during the Thanksgiving Day Massacre in 61. Once the Vietnam policy debate was settled, uh, a lot of people in the NSC got reassigned to the State Department and a lot of hawks in the State Department got re reassigned to less important jobs in the State Department. So one of the people that got canned was Lansdale, this advocate, this hawk on Vietnam who wanted combat troops in Vietnam. So he was given a Cuba sandbox to play in, unfortunately, by the president and his brother, which was a bad decision. But anyway, they let him play in a Cuba sandbox now, and they made him the operations officer for Mongoose. And uh, so, but his, his writ, his charter was only economic warfare and psychological warfare. Well, John Newman has written about this. Professor John Newman who is writing a series of books about the Kennedy assassination. You know, John Newman's a former Army intelligence officer. He was once the executive assistant to the director of the NSA, and he's a cryptologist by trade. So the third, his third book on the Kennedy assassination called Into the Storm explains the following. General Lansdale on Mongoose was working secretly with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Lyman Lemnitzer, who also... I mean, Lemnitzer wanted to invade Cuba. He had wanted us to bail out the failed Bay of Pigs invasion uh, and had given Kennedy really deceitful advice about that, lied to the president in 61 and said, yeah, the Bay of Pigs has a fair chance of success, when of course it didn't. Uh, so Lemnitzer still really wants to invade. So he's working back channel with Lansdale. And he gets Lansdale to request staff studies be done by the joint staff. So this is what happens in January. In January 62, Lansdale, who's now in a Cuba sandbox, he starts sending requests to the joint staff to do staff studies on Cuba. And the first one was on January 17th. This is background. And he says, I want policy statements on Cuba. What kind of a threat is it to the United States? And what should our policy be toward Cuba? So he requests that in January, on January 17th. And they don't answer it until March the 7th, but we know from various papers in the paper trail, he's working with them throughout the entire month of February on this stuff that became Northwoods. So as John Newman wrote in his volume three called Into the Storm, uh, Ed Lansdale became a stalking horse for Lyman Lemnitzer to advocate an invasion of Cuba 
through the Mongoose Committee. Uh, that wasn't supposed to be what Mongoose was doing. But anyway, the Joint Staff had these requests from Lansdale to do these staff studies. And the big request came on very late in the game after they'd already done all this staff work on, on March the uh, 5th, 62, on March 5th. Lansdale makes it official saying, I, I'm tasking the joint staff. I want to know what pretexts you can come up with for American military intervention in Cuba to justify an invasion on March the 5th. And they turn around and issue this big letter to McNamara a week later, less than, yeah, on the uh, 13th. Nobody does staff work that quickly. So they were working on all this stuff during February. So I'm going to read two sentences to you. When Lansdale, and this is not in the 13-page uh, letter, if you, if you Google the search, if you put into a search engine Northwood's documents, you'll get a 13-page, the 13-page letter from March 1362 that Lemnitzer signed and sent to McNamara. But you won't get the whole staff study that was an inch and a half thick. That's what we got, and that's what's in the archive. So anyway, Lansdale wanted a staff study. Here's what the joint staff wrote back to him from his January 17th question. Number one, the Soviets could establish land, sea, and or air bases in Cuba. Okay, that's pretty short and straightforward. That would have been really bad uh, during the Cold War. Listen to B. It makes them sound awfully smart. Listen to B. The Soviets could provide Castro with a number of ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads. Or they could furnish the missiles and maintain joint control of the nuclear warheads. So uh, this is kind of an oh, by the way. But uh, John Newman gave some extended PowerPoint presentations this past spring for Jacob Hornberger and his Future of Freedom Foundation. It's a libertarian organization. And he finally explained in public what he concluded years ago, which is that the Joint Chiefs of Staff by whatever means, had indications, probably from eavesdropping and photography, that the Soviets may have been on their way to introducing ballistic missiles to Cuba. Now, now we all know that the Soviets didn't make the official decision to do that until late May and June of 62. And they didn't start shipping the missiles until July, the equipment, and then the first missiles, I think, arrived in September. Uh, so, but, but the point is, he thinks the Joint Chiefs of Staff and, and their Joint Staff had early indications that this was probably going to happen early in 62. And this response that Lansdale got from his policy, I want a policy statement on Cuba, they're predicting what will happen. Newman actually thinks that the Joint Chiefs withheld this possibility from Kennedy on purpose. And they wanted to actually wait until the missiles were there to force Kennedy to bomb and invade Cuba, to put him in a corner where he had no option but to do what they wanted, which was to invade. Right. So, so Newman's, Newman's basic thesis is that Kennedy was being deliberately lied to. Yes. And that, and that in this case, important information precursor knowledge that this was probably going to happen was being withheld from him. And yet the joint staff is sharing it with Lansdale when they respond to him on March 7th. So, so here's the deal. 
if you go to the letter, the 13-page document, it, it's a cover letter with 12 pages attached that the National Security Archive is put up online. If you Google that, Northwoods documents, you'll see that uh, uh, near the end of the document, the Joint Chiefs were told by the Joint Staff that there's not going to be a naturally occurring uprising in Cuba for nine to 10 months at least. There's no chance of an internal uprising. Uh, and therefore, a provocation is necessary to justify military intervention. In other words, we can't invade to support a naturally occurring insurrection because there won't be one. So we need to, we need, we need to develop a provocation. So the rest of the letter is the provocation. So some of these outrageous concepts that the Joint Chiefs of Staff actually put in writing, they got it from their joint staff who had been working on it for at least a month, maybe a month and a half at the request of Lansdale through the back door. Uh, here are some of the provocations. One is to uh, sink a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay and blame it on the Cubans. Actually sink a ship. They didn't say whether it would be an old warship uh, or a cargo ship or what. Uh, but the Navy has a lot of auxiliary ships that are cargo ships. And we had a lot of older destroyers. So it could have been a cargo ship or a destroyer. Sink a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay. Blame it on the Cubans. An actual false flag. <laughs> yes. You know, this, this is the ultimate false flag operation, all of this. So another possible, and they even called it a Remember the Maine incident. Of course, it's the explosion of the Battleship Maine's forward magazine that that was used as the justification for the Spanish-American War, and which at the time, the yellow press in America was blaming that on a mine, that a mine, the ship was mined by a floating mine by the Spanish. And as it turns out, uh, we now think, I mean, Hyman Rickover, the father of the nuclear submarine, did a study on the main years before he was father of the nuclear submarine, I think. And he decided that the, uh, the coal bunker inside the ship caught fire. There was a coal fire, and the coal bunker was right next to the Ford Powder magazine, and that the ship blew itself up. That The yellow press explanation was total nonsense in that case, but it was used to justify a war. America's empire-building war, where we got the Philippines, Cuba, and decided, okay, well, finally, we'll annex Hawaii, too. You know? uh, so anyway... Uh, so one of the false flag things in the Northwoods papers was to dress friendly Cubans in, in Castro uniforms of the Castro army and have them simulate an attack on the base. And then, of course, they'd be captured, right? And because they're friendly Cubans, you know, they'll say whatever we want in interrogation. Blame it all on Castro. Another one was that they would uh, set fires on the base. Friendly Cubans acting like Castro agents set fires on the base blow up ammunition dumps on the base, lob mortar shells into the Guantanamo Bay base from outside. But this, these were false flag attacks by friendly Cubans dressed, in other words, Cuban exiles in the United States, dressed in Castro uniforms and put ashore to do these false flag things. So the two, the three most disturbing, okay, Another one that's false flag is the terror campaign. The terror campaign that was a real terror campaign that was to be launched in Miami and other cities, possibly including Washington, D.C. And it would have included real attacks with bombs and gunfire, including the possibility of real wounding 
and what was implied was the real killing, the real wounding of real people. And that once again, Cuban exiles friendly to the US would be doing these attacks, but when they're captured, they would, be, they would say, I was a Castro agent, but they were gonna shoot and bomb people and then blame it on Castro. Well, that, yeah, that might've incited a war fever. Uh, and uh, another one was to shoot up a, a boatload of refugees on the, on the way to the United States, really shoot them up, kill them, trying to escape from Castro's Cuba and blame that on Castro's little tiny Navy. So the, the three that were maybe the most sophisticated and really bother me, one was to paint an F-86 Korean War era fighter jet, F, paint it like a MiG. In other words, put Cuban markings on the wings and the tail of the Cuban Air Force, of the communist Cuban Air Force, and have that thing uh, simulate attacks on a U.S. airliner filled with real passengers. Simulate attacks probably meant making strafing runs on the airliner and firing blanks. But uh, I think that was really a stupid one because people on airplanes have cameras. And if anybody had taken a picture of an F-86 jet, that's the jet flown in the Korean War by John Glenn and by Buzz Aldrin, for example. And if you've seen the movie, you know, The Hunters with Robert Mitchum, probably your young audience has never heard of that movie, but they all show the F-86. And so the MiG at the time, was similar in appearance, but not the same, just similar. It was stubby, it had a stubby nose on it and swept back wings. So that would have fallen apart as soon as somebody developed a photograph of this plane. They somebody would have said, that's, that's not a MiG, that's an American jet. <laughs> the one that was the most disturbing was to hire a company that's a CIA asset who owns an airliner. So apparently there were such things because the plan says, uh, seek out a CIA controlled asset, a company that owns a real airline. We're gonna turn that airliner into a drone, which can be flown by remote control and can be exploded in the air by bomb without any people in it. Wow. And we're gonna take another airline, listen to this, we're gonna take another airliner that's exactly the same kind of airplane and paint it so that it looks just like the one owned by the CIA front company. And we're gonna load the fake airplane that's been painted to look the same with carefully selected passengers who are really all on the CIA payroll. And so both jets were to take off and rendezvous over the ocean south of Florida. Now remember, Cuba is 90 miles away from Key West. So they're gonna rendezvous in the air and then the one with the people in it, who just looks like the real airplane, is going to secretly land at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. And all the people are going to get off. Nobody's going to be killed. But the, the real airplane owned by the CIA company, which has been converted into a drone, is going to continue flying the flight plan. The flight plan was supposed to take the plane over Cuba to somewhere else in Central America or South America. It would have a flight plan that would justify flying over Cuba. And then the tape recorder would come on in the middle of the flight and say, Mayday, Mayday, we're being attacked by the Cuban Air Force. Help us, help us. And then the plane would be blown up over the mountains over Cuba by remote control. And this would, be, would have become a Casas Belli, like the other ones, but maybe more dramatic than the other ones. That seems like the most detailed of them all. Like It seems like there was thought put into that. The most detailed, and it's the one that probably had the biggest likelihood of success because they were going to use the actual airplane, 
owned by this airline. And the thing is, that would mean that all the serial numbers for the parts would have been, you know, if there'd been an investigation by the uh, NTSB or by some international air organization, the part numbers would have matched as, oh yeah, this is authentic. Uh, the problem is there wouldn't have been any bodies <laughs> okay, in the crash site. That's the biggest problem with that scenario. But otherwise, it, it was entirely feasible of working. You would have had a radio broadcast from a tape recording. We're under attack. Mayday, mayday. Cuban Air Force attacking us. The plane would have blown up. There would have been wreckage all over the landscape in Cuba. And, uh, and you would have had that verified by some international committee. And, uh, and then the fact that there are no bodies, the U.S. would probably, the Cubans would say, hey, there's no bodies. This was all a dirty trick. And the U.S., probably would have said, oh, Castro just disposed of the bodies. He, did, he didn't want to look bad, so he disposed of the bodies. So that would have been the one that might have had the best chance of succeeding that or the terror campaign in Miami and Washington. And uh, there was one other one I'll mention, and that was to have some F-101 uh, Air Force fighters, a, 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 a gaggle of them, five or six of them, fly uh, you know, close to the uh, Florida Keys, you know, north of Cuba, and there would be a tail end Charlie. The tail end Charlie pilot would be, a, you know, a CIA pilot, CIA hire. And he would drop back behind the other planes and he would claim over the radio, I'm being attacked by Cuban aircraft. Help me, help me. And then he would be flying so low, he would drop off the radar scope. And he would go secretly land once again at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. Must have been one of the CIA's favorite places. And then his the tail number on his airplane was going to be repainted. It would have a different ID marking on it. And then the submarine, listen to this, would actually surface. This sounds like James Bond stuff, just like the other one. A submarine would surface and deposit airplane parts on the water, the, a few that would float perhaps. And, uh, and they would be found and they would be the evidence that this tail end Charlie was shot down by the Cuban Air Force. So uh, a lot of thought went into this. Uh, they had the whole month of February to develop these staff studies. So like I said, when Lansdale formally requested that the joint staff come up with these pretexts on uh, March the 5th, that's why they were able to answer it a week later because they'd been working on this thing for more than a month. So uh, to make a long story short, uh, McNamara claimed years later I don't know what to think about this, but he claimed not to remember receiving this bombshell letter uh, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, he also said it, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely absurd. It's the stupidest thing he's ever read when it was shown to him years later. So uh, he certainly didn't approve of it. And three days later, after it was sent to McNamara, this letter, this concept of false flag and uh, provocations to justify an invasion was brought up in a meeting by Lyman Lemnitzer, the man who signed the letter, the Northwoods letter. So he brought it up at a meeting with President Kennedy and Lansdale was present, taking notes of what was said at the meeting. And other people were present, Maxwell Taylor, I think Bobby Kennedy was there. Those meeting minutes were released in 2005 by the archives under the JFK Records Act. They, they had a schedule for release of records, which would continue after the review board shut down at various intervals. 
And uh, so uh, when this document was released, David Talbot published it in his book, Brothers. I'm really glad he did, because it says that Lemnitzer brought up the subject of Northwoods. He didn't call it Northwoods. He says, we have a series of actions we've planned that could stimulate uh, U.S. military intervention in Cuba, Mr. President. And the president said, I hope you're not talking about invasion. We're not going to do that. We're not going to invade Cuba. And uh, he shot it down at the meeting in no uncertain terms. And Lansdale's there for the meeting. And he's there. Lansdale's there. And he records all this. And the memo gets released in 2005. And it's in Talbot's book, Brothers. So uh, that's what the Northwoods documents are all about. And so, yes, uh, it is an attempt by the U.S. military to provoke aggressive war, to provoke it with our own people, to come up with pretexts for invading Cuba with the American that would justify it, the attack with the American people. Remember, you got to remember what generation these people are from, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and his fellow members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the people, the senior members of the Joint Staff. They're from the World War II trained generation. And they're from the generation that was incredibly frustrated by the stalemate in the Korean War. They hated that. They hated the fact that the Korean War was a stalemate and that nobody won. And we lost all those soldiers and we had this demilitarized zone, which still exists today. And there was no military winner or loser. Uh, and so they hated that. And they wanted communism to be defeated on the battlefield. And they, some of the supporting papers for Northwoods that are in the more massive file that's in the JFK records collection, uh, the, some of the supporting papers indicate that they, their attitude was the existence of a communist regime in Cuba was inconsistent with the security requirements of the Western Hemisphere. It was just something they found completely intolerable and couldn't accept. And so that's why they believed in the provocation. And they thought, you know, as they as they indicated in their Northwoods papers, once the provocation occurs, a political decision will be made and then the intervention will be launched. So that's what it's all about. So I can see some people uh, that, that would want to play devil's advocate saying, well, th this just sounds like a, a zany CIA plot and they, they just got some people to fly these ideas around, but they were never going to really seriously consider doing it. How do you respond to people that try to brush the Northwoods documents First of all, it's not a off? CIA plot. This is, the, uh, this is a plot cooked up by the joint staff in the Pentagon. And it's approved, it's approved by the joint chiefs of staff, and the letter is signed by the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff. And let me tell you how serious they were about invading Cuba. Not only were they serious enough that they wanted to endorse these pretexts, but uh, when Kennedy shot it down, shut down the idea of these false flag provocations on March 16th at the meeting, the Joint Chiefs turned around on April the 10th and sent perhaps the most insubordinate letter they ever sent to President Kennedy. So they, they sent it once again to McNamara, but that means Kennedy saw it, believe me. Uh, the letter of April 10th said, uh, we should invade Cuba now, and we should do it anyway. In other words, there were no more pretexts. And they repeated that the existence of the Castro regime in Cuba was inconsistent with the security of the Western Hemisphere. We need to do this invasion now before all the current reservists that are on active duty are allowed to go home. And it's basically, it says, 
you must act on this and you must do it now. So that's the second push to invade Cuba in 1962. The first push is Northwoods, which would have given the administration uh, justification of wrongs done to American citizens and wrongs done to American property. Uh, the second memo didn't give him a justification. It said, you have to do this. And it implied to McNamara that if you guys don't do this, you're cowards. And in, in, in so many words, what it was implied was you're, you're foolish and you're irresponsible if you don't do this. And of course, the third attempt to invade Cuba that year was during the missile crisis, when the unanimous position of the Joint Chiefs, even though Lemnitzer was gone and replaced by Max Taylor, the unanimous position of the Joint Chiefs was to bomb and invade Cuba. So they made three attempts that year to get the president to invade Cuba. And the first attempt was Northwood. So these guys were deadly serious. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sorry I said they're uh, the CIA, but I was thinking in terms of I, it, like what you said, it sounds like something out of a, a James Bond novel or movie. It does sound outlandish in hindsight, but uh, they weren't joking when they sent the letter to McNamara on March 13th. Uh, and that was preceded, you know, by a month and a half of staff work. And the uh, after all, the man who asked for the staff, study, staff studies was uh, General Lansdale, who uh, opposed Kennedy on two counts. He wanted to send combat troops to Vietnam and got taken out of the Vietnam sandbox in response to that and put in the Cuba sandbox. And now he's stimulating behind the Kennedy brothers back. He's trying to get the Joint Chiefs to recommend doing this. And, and they did. But Newman documents in, in, in detail I won't go into here. Earlier this year, in his PowerPoint presentations at the Future of Freedom Foundation's uh, symposium online, that uh, it was Lemnitzer using Lansdale as a stalking horse to get him to ask for these studies. And then that allowed them to do the studies and to kick it up to the McNamara level. Uh, so uh, the background of all of this uh, proves even more how serious they were. I mean, I just want to tell your audience in case they don't know this, just a couple of simple facts. Remember, the Bay of Pigs was in April 61, and that was the Cuban exile invasion, only 1,400 people, 1,400 young boys and young men and old men. What a joke, right? That's not a very large group of people uh, invading Cuba. Supposed to, supposedly, they're going to stimulate an internal uprising, which will take hold and then overthrow Castro's regime. But the CIA figured out internally, we know this now from documents that have been, they figured out internally in November of 60 that there would be no internal uprising. Castro had control, he had infiltrated every organization that was anti-Castro, and the people that were against him had either already left Cuba and gone to the United States as refugees, or their organizations were infiltrated. So they knew that there wasn't going to be an, an internal uprising. And that same year, at a meeting of the National Security Council under Eisenhower, the NSC admitted that the only chance for this exile invasion to succeed is as a joint CIA-DOD enterprise. In other words, as a joint CIA paramilitary operation, this Mickey Mouse invasion by 1,400 people, followed up by a Pentagon invasion. 
But did they tell Kennedy this? No. They withheld from JFK and Eisenhower, they withheld from the incoming president and the outgoing president the fact that there would be no internal uprising. And then after Kennedy took office, the CIA proceeded to lie to him and say, there will be an internal uprising. And that's what this invasion will stimulate. Uh, it'll stimulate an internal uprising and Castro will fall. And we find out during the postmortem, you know, Max Taylor had been chief of staff of the army in the late 50s. He was brought in by Jack Kennedy right after the Bay of Pigs to do a postmortem study on everything that went wrong. Because Kennedy was furious with himself for approving it. How could I have been so stupid, et cetera, et cetera. But he was even more furious with the CIA for lying to him and with the Pentagon for giving him bad advice. So Max Taylor discovered that, that the Pentagon never thought it would succeed, the invasion of the 1,400 exiles. So they, they lied about it in a report to McNamara, which said it has a fair chance of success. But when they said fair chance of success, that meant 30% success, 70% failure. So these guys lied and gave bad advice to the president. And they cooperated in the CIA law that the Bay of Pigs invasion would work. And the real thought of Chairman, uh, CIA Chairman Alan Dulles, his real thought, which he revealed later in interviews, was that he thought the president would devote whatever resources were necessary so that the enterprise, the Bay of Pigs, would not fail, so that he wouldn't be embarrassed and the enterprise would not fail. So they all thought he'd go along and end up invading anyway, even though he said, he told these guys ahead of time, U.S. military is not going to invade Cuba, and we're not going to participate in this exile invasion. They didn't believe him, and they thought they could pressure him into doing it to bail it out. He refused. He chose embarrassment over getting sucked into a Cuban invasion. So uh, th these guys were frustrated in 62 that they couldn't force the president, the young president in 61, to bail out the Bay of Pigs with an invasion of with the Marines and Navy air power. They were really frustrated by the Korean War, frustrated by the Bay of Pigs the year before. And that's why you can be sure these people were deadly serious when they sent, when Lemnitzer put his big flamboyant signature on the Northwoods letter on March 13th and followed it less than a month later on April 10th with a recommendation that said to McNamara, uh, you should evade anyway. You know, minus any pretext, we need to invade Cuba now. These are like the the ultra hawks of the Cold War. Yeah, uh, the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a cadre of people in the CIA who had dreamed up and supported the Bay of Pigs uh, in the covert covert action branch, Deputy Director of Plans, but the whole Joint Chiefs. Uh, so. Uh, this was, you know, Northwoods was the first of three attempts on their part to get the president to invade Cuba with the U.S. military, because they knew that there wasn't going to be any uprising, and they knew that an exile invasion was not strong enough and had failed miserably in 61. So this was the only way to get rid of that government was through overwhelming U.S. invasion. And, uh, that's, I mean, I, I take them very seriously. No matter, we can snicker years later at how some of these things sound James Bondish, but they were deadly serious. So the, there's people I've liked and had on the show that will, uh, one of them being uh, 
Noam Chomsky. And, you know, if you try to talk to Chomsky about Kennedy, he will not go there. He'll say, oh, you know, Kennedy was a cold warrior. But uh, these documents seem to point in favor of the thesis that uh, an author we mentioned earlier in the program, John M. Newman, had uh, in his 1992 book, JFK in Vietnam. Uh, you know, it, it seems to confirm a lot of what Newman was saying in 92. Chomsky hasn't kept up with the scholarship on Vietnam. He doesn't want to keep up. He's in denial. And so his little tiny book that he published, Rethinking Camelot, is just uh, wants to blame. Uh, it's the approach that people had the decade after Kennedy's death when they didn't know better, which is to say, well, Kennedy was a cold warrior and uh, there was no reason that uh, anybody would have killed him for his Cold War policies. Well, that's absolutely untrue. And Chomsky is in denial of that and just doesn't want to admit that and doesn't want to stay current with scholarship. So there are many liberals in the United States today who are psychologically incapable of believing that there was a coup in the United States in 1963. They don't want to believe that their beloved country and their beloved democracy was so badly broken in 1963 that key elements of the national security state would do away with the duly elected national leader because they hated his foreign policy and didn't want to see him reelected. Well, JG, thanks for that interview. That was fascinating. Uh, what else do you have coming up on your other podcast, Parallax Views? Field State Update may be particularly interested in the interview I have coming out with William I. Robinson, who is a sociologist, uh, I think based out of, I don't want to mess it up, but I know he's in California. But uh, William I. Robinson has a new book out called uh, Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. And it's a follow-up to his previous book, Global Police State. And, you know, it's not some crazy Alex Jones type stuff. It's a book dealing with uh, the growing inequality we've seen in this country and around the world uh, since the beginning of the pandemic and how that's creating sort of fault lines uh, between, you know, what could be called the global transnational capitalist class uh, or the, the ruling class and, uh, you know, the workers around the world or the global proletariat. So I think that's a really, really interesting interview. And we got into issues like surveillance technology and social control and uh, all matter of just fascinating subjects related to the global economy and its restructuring post-COVID. So that's the big interview I want to promote right now. And uh, I also have Sean Guillory of the SRB podcast. that used to just be called Sean's Russia blog. And he spoke with me just before we recorded this actually about his new podcast series teddy goes to the ussr which is about man teddy Rowe, who went to the soviet union in 1968 as an american tourist and it's interesting because you would think oh is this just a story about an american tourist going to the ussr what 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 is that well the thing is this sort of story ends up giving us a window into you know, Soviet life, how Americans perceive Soviets and how Soviets perceived Americans and how maybe both sides got it wrong when it came to how they viewed the other. Uh, so it's a really fascinating interview. And I think it, it's very important at this present moment that we think about 
how we sort of otherize people and the problems with the ways in which we otherize people and the ways in which we always look towards the other. Uh, but sometimes we do that so we don't have to look ourselves in the mirror and look at our own problems. So it's a really fascinating podcast series. Uh, Teddy goes to the USSR and Sean Guillory is behind that. And he's going to be on my podcast later this week. Great. And uh, check the show notes for links to JG stuff. And also I had a, pretty interesting story just popped up this morning on failed state update it's uh it's called the diy predator catchers of erie pennsylvania what yeah it's um you know there's this whole like community of like they're basically social media influencers but they're doing like a diy version of to catch a predator where they'll like pose as underage people in chat rooms and then meet up with them at the mall. You know, the guy thinks he's going to meet up with a 14-year-old girl, and then it's, you know, these two dudes from Erie who, um, in the in the case of uh, Erie Predator Catchers, and I was drawn to this story because it's dystopian weirdness. You know, the idea that this is like entertainment on a level. Like, of course, these people believe that they're doing what the police can't or won't do as far as stopping predators but it's also you know are they really stopping predators by doing this they believe that they're catching predators or stopping predators the police and the district attorney in erie county says no you're interfering with like actual investigations and you're doing things that don't result in any kind of legal ramifications because you're not following the legal procedures and it's just kind of a mess and then there's this whole level on top of it of it's social media, so it's people are getting revenue on, from ads on YouTube. They have Patreons. It's like this whole, it's this like 21st century social media mess. So I, I met one of these guys and interviewed him, and um, he's on the website. Unless the police are involved in the sting, you know, it's not like an arrest necessarily happens. And, and this was also an issue that people brought up with uh, Perverted Justice, which was the group behind Catch Predator. And there's also something very weird to me about to catch a predator because I felt like that that show was almost you're supposed to be entertained by seeing these horrible people get humiliated and I'm like I don't really want to see the whole humiliation aspect I just want to make sure kids are safe there, there's something that does rub me the wrong way about that yeah there are groups now that don't even put this on social media they just collect information and supply it to law enforcement and let law enforcement do their investigations, which, you know, but of course that's not fascinating or fun for people. And, you know, it's Erie, Pennsylvania. I don't know if you know this. 16501, which is like right downtown Erie, Pennsylvania, is like the poorest zip code in the country. So there's this real class element. You watch these videos and it's like, you know, you can tell you're in a depressed Rust Belt town and like these guys, they, you know, it's all on Facebook Live. So they go out and they're like following this predator and people are driving by honking their horns because they're watching it live or they come out of the house to give them shout outs and stuff. So it's a weird cultural phenomenon. I, you know, it seems to say a lot about the Rust Belt, you know, this like post-capitalist whatever melu we're in right now. And, you know, the the fact that the Internet can't or won't police itself in a you know, in a fundamental way, I don't answer any questions. I raise a lot of questions, let people, you know, dive into this bizarre world for themselves. So it's, um, 
it's a story I'll be following for a while, but I just wanted to get this interview out there because it was pretty interesting. No, I'm, I'm really excited to read that story, though. I'm going to read it as soon as we get off here. So. Yeah. Uh-huh. 